0: Welcome to the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers on the history of medicine and medical humanities, which were given to audiences in University College Dublin as part of the Centre Seminar Series. For more information on the series and all of our activities, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash This episode features Professor Joanna Burke of Birkbeck College, University of London. Her primary focus has been on British, American and Australian societies from the 19th to the 21st centuries. She's the author of several books including Fear, A Cultural History, Rape, A History from 1860s to the Present and the forthcoming Are Women Animals, Historical Reflections on What It Means to be Human, 1791 to the Present. This latest book was the subject of her paper in UCD.
1: What I'm going to talk about today is actually um, comes from my, my, my new book, Um, Are Women Animals? In April 1872, a woman signing herself an earnest Englishwoman. Tried to find out who she is and failed. Anyway, earnest Englishwoman addressed a question that gripped the minds of many people of her times. And that question is, who are entitled to the social and political rights assigned to mankind? Her basic assertion was that women were not considered to be fully human. Indeed, their um, situation, their status, was substantially worse than animals. As she boldly entitled her letter, that's her title, Are Women Animals? And the question, I think, is actually a really crucial one for us here today. In the 21st century, we have, if you like, become obsessed um, with defining, categorizing, identifying what it means to be human. And it turns out, of course, that the concept is a very volatile one, concepts of human versus animal, the mixture is very volatile one. In every period of history, every culture, there are commonsensical constructions of the human and the animal, but the distinction is always being undermined and reconstructed. And I think my point here is not simply that um, there are fears associated with this porous boundary, if you like, between the human and the animal, although that, of course, is certainly the case, but that this border is actually policed and contested with Uh, with huge precision. In complex and often contradictory ways, the ideas, values, and practices used to justify the sovereignty of any particular construction of the human over the rest of sentient life is what creates society and social life. And delimiting these territories not only involves fear and violence, but it inspires it. Um, this is actually the title of the forthcoming... Well, the, fourth, the title is Are Women Animals? Historical Reflections or What It Means to Be Human. Um, and these, basically... I just wanted to set my current paper in the context of this broader um, book so that you're, you know sort of where I'm coming from. Um, these are the six... Uh, substantive chapters so speaking you know language and reason um seeing Levinas's face-to-face encounter you know who truly has a face do animals have faces do all humans have faces so history of physiognomy for example eating um what does it mean to ingest the organs muscles and blood of animals inside one's bodies creation um the creating um, sh- um chimeras um Genotransplantation, um, stem cell technologies, um, you know, the, sort of, the emerging, if you like, of human-animal bodies, which incite fears about so-called species integrity, as though um, such integrity has not always been an illusion of Western science and philosophy. Feeling, that's what we're going to be talking about um, today. And recognizing legal constructions of personhood and the deeply problematic nature of both Human rights and animal rights, in other words, is merely shoring up, if you like, a particular notion of the human. But today, um, because I want to talk about sentience and rights, it is that, I think it's the sixth chapter, one, two, yeah, anyway, fifth chapter, um, that I want to turn to. Um, and the honest Englishwoman, of course, is crucial to this. What was she on about? I mean, certainly, if you read this letter, she sounds really, really exacerbated. Exas- exasperated Um, she says whether women are the equals of men has been endlessly debated adding that it was a moot point whether um, women even possessed souls and I'll be saying more about that shortly but she pleaded can it be too much to ask for a definitive acknowledgement that women are at least animals And her ire had been fueled by three court cases that week. In the first case, a man had punched another man on his mouth and stolen his watch. And the scoundrel had been sentenced to seven years' penal servitude with 40 lashes of the cat. In contrast, same week, a husband um, killed his wife. He threw her under um, the wheels of a passing dray, deliberately, um, and he was sentenced to just three months' um, hard labor. When another man, same week, coolly knocked out the eye of his mistress and later assaulted her when she left the hospital, he was sentenced to only four months hard labour. Clearly, the earnest Englishwoman reflected women were not fully persons in the eyes of the law. In fact, the earnest Englishwoman lamented the situation. their situation was even worse. Their legal status was lower than that of animals. She had, she says... I have read of heavier sentences being inflicted for cruelty towards that, may I venture to say, lower creation. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals had been formed in 1823, nearly half a century earlier. Wasn't it about time, she asked, that English men ensured legal provisions against cruelty were extended to all who need them in this country? Now, the earnest Englishwoman acknowledged That many MPs um, in the 1870s um, were opposed to granting women the vote, the right to vote in general elections. In the 1870s, there had been very, very strong opposition, as people here know, to a bill that proposed that, quote, "...whenever words occur which impart the masculine gender, man, they shall be held to include women." But the earnest English women claimed to be making a much more modest proposition... Who could object, she asked, to the suggestion that whenever the word animal occurs, it shall be held to include women? She pleaded with parliamentarians to introduce at least an equal interdict on wanton barbarity to cat, dog, and women. Now, the earnest English woman um, was appealing to a tradition, of course, of respect and consideration that lay emphasis on the capacity to suffer. In a footnote in An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, 1789, Jeremy Bentham famously noted that the important ethical question was not whether a creature could reason or talk, you know, other chapters of the book, which have often been regarded as crucial in defining uh, the human, but can they suffer? Although Bentham had not used the phrase rights of animals and he would have been utterly appalled by the interpretation given today um, to his famous infamous footnote, nevertheless other philosophers did. In the English language, the first use of the term rights of animals occurred um, in Thomas Young's essay on humanity to animals written 10 years after Bentham's famous book. Young argued against cruelty to animals on three grounds, basically. Um, the first two concerned scriptural prohibitions against cruelty um, and the belief that mistreating animals encouraged callous behavior towards humans. In the third reason, however, he appealed to sentience. Animals, he pointed out, were endured with the capacity of perceiving pleasure and pain, We must concede that the creator wills the happiness of these his creatures. This, I take it, is the foundation of the rights of animals. That's the first time it's been used in English. Now, writing in the 1870s, the earnest English woman extrapolated from animals to women. She deplored the fact that the man who stole a watch and punched its owner was given a sufficiently harsher sentence in the man than the men who severely assaulted or murdered women. Although some people may believe that a watch was, quote, an object of greater value than the eye of a mistress or the life of a wife, the earnest Englishwoman woman pleaded with her readers to remember that the inanimate watch does not suffer. It must cause acute agony for any living creature endowed with nerves and muscles to be blinded or crushed to death. Being such a creature is not women entitled to a fair amount of that protection offered by law accorded by law to other domestic animals subject to man in other words women were living creatures like other animals should they not be given the same rights and protections as other animals now you know, as people here will be aware, her rhetoric, um, her choice of language, was deliberate, feeding into a very powerful rhetoric of the time that had emerged in the 18th century um, and had come to dominate thinking within a century and a half. It's no coincidence that historically, rights emerged in the 18th century following an increased emphasis on states of feeling, and linked to this, of course, the encouragement of a new sensibility. Um, a new emphasis, if you like, on emphatic um, identification. Increased respect for the bodily integrity of other people both forged and advanced a sentimental sympathy for the human our lot. Thus, in Characteristics of Men, Manners, Opinions, Times, the third Earl of Shaftesbury developed a theory of ethics that emerged not from religion, but from natural affection. Imagination, he argued, was the home of the divine presence in each person, right and wrong, Shaftesbury argued, could be understood through the application of an imaginative, the, the imaginative powers of sympathy, allowing one person to experience another, another's pain. And you know, his ethics was radical, posited a new image of humanity as sympathetic, as innately moral. Philosopher Adam Smith developed this idea further in his The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1758-9. Man may seem selfish, um, Smith famously wrote in the f- book's first sentence, but there were, quote, some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortunes of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasures of seeing it. Through acts of imagination, other people's agonies were made manifest, and then we tremble and shudder at the thought of what he feels. So in other words, this belief in a moral instinct, compassion, sympathy, much later called empathy, enabled um, enabled people to see other beings as creatures like themselves, opening up a space for um, talk of rights. And this relationship between sentience and rights was extended to animals. And crucially, um, of course, theological arguments were canvassed for the sentience of animals. But what I find interesting here is actually that two very contradictory um, perspectives were argued. According to one account, um, animals only have this life, so it is worse to be cruel to them than it is to be cruel to humans, who at least would be rewarded for their fortitude in the next. Um, in contrast, others argued that animal suffering in this world was evidence that they would join good Christians on the heavenly plane. Now, the first argument um, um, can be illustrated um, by the writings of the theologian Humph- um, Humphrey uh, Primate. 1776, he pointed out that, quote, "...the cruelty of men to be brutes is more heinous in point of injustice than the cruelty of men unto men. The main reason was that cruelty to animals called irreparable um, injury because they could hope for nothing more than temporary happiness in their lives." To anyone who challenged the statement, claiming that some men in this world were as unfortunately circumstanced as the unhappy brutes, Primate was dismissive. He reminded them, quote, a day will come when all the injuries which an innocent man can suffer from the hands of violence and oppression will be overbalanced in a future in a happy state where our light affliction, which in comparison to eternity is but for a moment, shall work for us A far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. But for animals, there could be no hope of eternal justice because his present life is the whole of his existence. I mean, Primate, if you haven't read this dissertation, it's absolutely fantastic. Very eloquently argued. But of course, there are others equally devoted to animal welfare who refuted this belief that animals would not share in the afterlife. This theological position was also adamant about the importance of recognizing animal sentience, but argued that suffering fulfilled a positive function in promoting the future salvation of all living creatures, human and animal. For these animal guardians, as they called themselves... Um, the capacity to suffer entitled living creatures not only to consideration in this world but also to eternal life in the next. Animal guardians constantly repeated this mantra that since animals share in the punishment and work and suffer with their higher brothers, then they must also be rewarded by an afterlife of perfect happiness. In this view, as much as in primates, the animal in pain might actually be more deserving of sympathy than a suffering person. I'm going to come back to that point at the end. More deserving of of sympathy than than humans. In the 1894 edition of The Animal Guardian, the author of a, um, a piece called Destiny of the Lower Animals stated that the sinless one was made perfect by suffering. I speak with all reverence. And so may the unsinning animals... Those who suffer most here will be raised to a higher status hereafter. Now, he denied to his appalled um, uh, congregation um, congregation, audience um, that he had jettisoned the view that man is the Lord of creation, but encouraged um, his readers in all humility to admit that, in some sense, the lower animals are better than man because they have never fallen as man has. He claimed to have found some significance in this, in the fact that in the biblical account of creation, and I find this really weird, um, quote, it is stated that the beasts were made out of the ground, but man of the dust of the ground, the worn out particles, as it were, the very refuge left over after the other works of God had been formed. Okay, Um, In such a way, the suffering animal could possess a direct link to the divine, even to the bleeding uh, body of Christ. Indeed, in contrast to human suffering, which was the consequence of sin, the suffering animal was more honored because she was without moral blemish. As the earnest Englishwoman recognized when she pleaded for a definitive acknowledgement that women are at least animals, the spectacle of animal suffering was routinely routinely, and often lingeringly conjured up within the animal rights movement from the 1860s, and its point was precisely to engender sympathetic identification for animals. But why did people need to be reminded of the fact that animals were sentient creatures and should not be used merely as means to an end? I mean, the most important reason, of course, is that not everyone agreed. The most important um, pro-vivisectionist, Um, um, argued, of course, that animals like other groups within society, such as slaves, actually did not feel pain and therefore could be used as simply a means to an end. In the words of the author of Moral Philosophy or Ethics of Natural Law, 1888, brute beasts not having understanding and therefore not being persons cannot have any rights. They are a number of things. There is no shadow of evil resting on the practice of causing pain to brutes. Writing in 1886, Briggs Carlyle agreed for him, the important factor influencing sensation was whether, an organ- whether the organism's nervous organization was coarsely grained or not. A difference, he went on, can readily be observed even in man himself between the European and the North American Indian, or between civilized man in his drawing room and the same man reduced to a semi-savage state on the field of battle, it needs not to go very far down the scale of existence before coming to creatures to whom, quite obviously, the loss of a limb is a matter of no concern. From this point, there is no doubt a gradual, very gradual, increase in susceptibility, until we reach the apes, or even, we might say, until we reach savage man, and then there is a wide gap. However, even those who argued that animals were not susceptible, did not feel pain, um, might still be appalled by cruelty to animals, unless, of course, necessary, as pro-sectionists would would whisper. Now, this only makes sense um, once we realise that the reason that animals needed to be treated well was only to safeguard humans. And I will actually defend the only if you want me to. Um, It was taken for granted by everyone, whether animal guardian or vivisectionist, that allowing cruelty to animals would open the way to cruelty towards people. German philosopher Immanuel Kant famously argued in 1797 that behaving kindly towards animals was always only a duty of man to himself. As he elaborated, cruelty dulls his shared feelings of their pain and so weakens and gradually uproots a natural disposition that is very serviceable to morality in one's relations with other men. Indeed, in the 18th century and throughout the 19th, arguments against cruelty to animals were not, in fact, about cruelty as we today um, understand that term. Um, The emphasis was only rarely... Um, and very, very, very rarely, on the experience of pain. It was almost wholly on the effect of inflicting pain on animals, the effect that it would have on behavior towards humans. For those religiously inclined, it was also about, of course, that terrifying face-to-face encounter with God. When standing before the Almighty in the afterlife, how would cruel people be able to reconcile animal torture with their <coughs> divinely... or oh, ordained guardianship of the lower animals. But increasingly, a secular version of this emerged in which callousness towards animals would eventually seep into human interactions. Of course, you know this upward seepage, if you like, um, from animals further up, of course, um, upward seepage of callousness affected those um, lesser humans um, uh, first, uh, sooner than their superiors, Thus, it was argued that men and women on the borders of full personhood, and we may want to talk later because that's a, the legal term and it changes significantly. Anyway, men and women are on the borders of full personhoods, we're talking about women, paupers, children, for example, ought to be wary of physicians who, who experimented on mute animals, practiced vivisection, because they would inevitably turn to those lesser humans who also lacked a voice within the polis. As um, someone calling herself Mercy's Voice, he's addressing women, but it scientists would, quote, carve your child or yourself as readily as he would little pussy on the hearth. It was a common argument. Um, Equating the rights of animals and women was an explicit part of the rhetoric in practically every feminist cause from the mid-19th century onwards. So in other words, our um, earnest Englishwoman is actually quite mainstream in this, this argument. That every feminist cause in this period is making these links. Um, I'm going to just give one example here, um, and that is the Ferrari of the passing of the Contagious Diseases Acts in 1860s. Um, everyone here knows the Contagious Diseases Acts? Yeah. Um, you know, the legislation passed through Parliament with little discussion. Some members of Parliament later admitted that they assumed the Acts only applied to animals. It was not an unreasonable assumption, since advocates of the legislation routinely compared the Acts favorably with acts it, with attempts to deal with cattle plague. For instance, in a speech from the House of Commons, 1870, this charming man here, um, Lionel Playfair, Playfair, once you hear what he says, you won't think that. Playfair, liberal politician, um, argued for extending the Contagious Diseases Acts, um, uh, explicitly um, uh, explicitly comparing it with the Animal Contagious Diseases Acts. He lamented that stamping out animal diseases was much more easier than human diseases, since in the former case it was so much easier to prevent the movement of cattle or even kill the infected animals, um, something that would, of course, be unacceptable um, towards women. He called women who worked as prostitutes as possessing the habits of beasts. They were poor creatures, fallen creatures, needed to be redeemed from savagery to something approaching civilization. They needed the humanizing influence of the acts. In the face of such arguments, the association for the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts, claimed that they were promoted themselves explicitly as equivalent to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Both societies, they argued, um, we both are required to intervene for the protection of dumb creatures who cannot protect themselves. However, these feminists faced a major stumbling block, um, and it's actually the one that the earnest Englishwoman herself identified. In fact, many people found it easier to sympathize with animal suffering than with human. Um, The increased link between sentience and rights was occurring at a time when increasing numbers of homo sapiens were claiming these rights. In other words, talk of the link between sentience and the rights of certain people women and workers, was diverted into much safer talk about animals' claim to sentience and therefore rights. Although feminists and other radicals theorized connections between the different constituencies of suffering subjects, many people found it easier to sympathize with animals than with women workers' children. Concern for the plight of children was a particularly sensitive one. Um, because it could lead, of course, to um, demands for political action that violated the principle of familial, of paternal, in particular, governance. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children was continually forced to defend itself against critics who objected to the ways they intervened into the inner sanctum of families. Equally, people who are clean, keen to demonstrate their civilized sensibility to suffering creatures might be equally keen to avoid the fiscal and political consequences that would arise from demonstrating concern for the plight of workers. And in this, I concur with James Turner's controversial book, Reckoning with the Beast, um, where he argued that kindness to animals profaned no social taboos upset no economic apple carts, either in the theoretical systems of political economists or in the harsh daily encounter of capital and labor. What Derrida called the discourse of carno-philogocentrism, is, those ideas, values, and practices that are used to justify humanity's sovereignty over animals, was precisely what enabled humans to believe that they possessed a thorough knowledge of the animal. In other words, people's presumptions of absolute superiority allowed them to treat animals with hearts swollen with sympathy. The suffering animal could be made to represent moral universality, a non-unique, easily projectable, corporeal essence capable of inciting sympathy. In contrast, witnessing human suffering was so unique, world-shattering, it inspired a revulsion, a turning away. I think this comes some way to helping us understand why this limited economy of sympathy, um, you know, which requires the development of hierarchies of sentience, was a common mantra also by opponents of animal rights. So in other words, it's a shared discourse. Thus, in 1884, socialist Edward Deacon um, Goedelson attempted to bolster his arguments in favor of vivisection by accusing animal guardians of thinking more of the sorrows of his pug or puss than of his wife or child. He insisted that there was nothing wicked in race (coughs) selfishness. Indeed, he continued, there is more sacredness, surely, about one human being than about all the other animal species put together. I cannot pay in full my duties of love and kindness to my neighbor and myself, Without being unkind to brutes, it is a sad requirement. The cry of the brute from the torture trowel is in my ear, and it grieves me. But the cry of the human from his bed of sickness is a louder one. Even some animal advocates agreed that there was this (coughs) limited economy of sympathy. But they drew a slightly different lesson from it, um, and that was that it was necessary to demote the status of certain humans. And there were two ways they made this argument. Firstly, by espousing a hierarchy based on aesthetics. And secondly, um, by ranking people and animals according to moral codes. First then, might animals in this discourse, the um, pro-animal guardian people, might animals be more beautiful than humans, more worthy of consideration, Many commentators who sought to elevate the aesthetic standing of animals did so by denigrating certain human bodies thus in an article entitled On the Notion of Souls in On the Notion of Souls of Beasts 1806 the author argued that it was certain that in cleanliness smoothness colour proportion and disposition of parts many animals exceed many humans he went further claiming that, this is my favorite quote, claiming that whoever imagines a man stark naked will judge a covering more proper for him than for all other animals. Race, uh, and then, of course, racist uh, sciences make this, made this point even more viciously. But beauty was not, uh, this is this, um, Charles Bell's uh, racial science about um, certain humans uh, have um, <coughs> better in cleanness, smoothness, color, proportion. Okay. But this was not the only argument they made. That was one argument. In, there was another way of ranking animals uh, and people um, which demoted certain humans o- over certain animals, um, and that was linked to ideas of morality. And This tended to be the approach of the feminists that um, I mentioned earlier, who abhorred the bestiality of working-class men in particular, Take um, um, Ellis Hopkins, feminist and social purity campaigner. She was not convinced that men of the lower orders could claim to be superior to animals. In her book entitled Is It Natural? 1885, Hopkins admitted to hating working men when she saw their bestial behavior in the public house when they begged for two two pence for a pot of beer, just like a pig beginning to grunt for his wash the moment you approach his sty. She agreed that the statement was rather hard. Hard, I mean, on the pigs. (laughs) Hopkins, yeah, she's real sweetie. Hopkins reflected that. I have often thought that we are very hard, not only on the pig, but also on the whole animal creation, in the way we have got to speaking, especially of the sins of the flesh as animal, brutal, bestial, and of using the common rough expression of the man who gets drunk or sins against his own manhood, that he makes a beast of himself. After all, she insisted, the pig did not go home and knock about his sow. Both the earnest English women and Hopkins, in other words, recognized that it was lesser humans, in both cases working class husbands and lovers, and not animals, who had a tendency to go home and knock about other sentient creatures. How unfair, then, that sows had greater legal protection from cruelty than female spouses. I mean, the fact that sows could be eaten is sort of conveniently ignored (laughs) here. Hopkins' respect for animals gave her a language with which to express revulsion against certain humans, that is, working-class men who displayed all the traits that set them outside, both the fully human, herself, and the animal. Ironically, though, um, and this part of the story is familiar, ironically, though, the earnest English woman's satire came true. Um, her plea that whenever the word animal occurs in law, it should be held to include women, was what actually happened, um, but to children. Although writing 14 years after the earnest English woman, Archbishop Manning and Reverend Benjamin War echoed, on behalf of children rather than women, the earnest English woman's cry. They wanted to place the child of the English savage on the same level as his dog. Already, they noticed, the savage has learned, and they mean um, British people, Uh, they don't mean uh, out in the empire, the savage has learned that it is not safe, not decent, uh, to knock his cattle about. But he has all sorts of maxims as to parental rights, his home being his castle and the like, which make it both safe and decent, and altogether as it ought to be, to knock his child about. At present, the law explicitly forbids ill-treating, abusing, torturing, and insufficient feeding of dogs. What the Society for the Prevention of Chil- Cruelty to Children um, will submit to Parliament is a proposal to do the same for children. In other words, exactly what the Ernest Englishwoman wanted um, uh, uh, for, um, but, but for children, not for women. And of course, that is what happened. Um, it took until 1884, a dozen years after Ernest Englishwoman was writing, and over 60 years after the establishment of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals for the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children to be established, and the SPCC shared offices and personnel with the RSPCA for a time. They had the same organizational and propaganda structures. They, um, the children's organization explicitly modeled their, all their propaganda and their magazines and, and their rules and regulations on, um, uh, the, on the RSPCA. The two movements only drew apart when it became clear on both sides, incidentally, that they were competing for the same limited compassion money. And incidentally, it was the children's organization that moved away because they realized that animals were getting all the, the, all the attention. To return to the um, women question, though, according to early feminists, less than fully human persons could be accorded status by claiming a sentience that was shared with the animal world. It was, however, a deeply problematic politics for at least six reasons. The first one is not very interesting, but I just always feel the need to say it. (laughs) And that is the Benthamite mantra that all animal rights activists today cite um, has been decontextualized, seriously misleading our readers about Bentham's philosophy. I mean, he was uh, promoted meat-eating, promoted vivisection, was a fervent opponent of natural rights for humans, let alone animals. But the other reasons are more substantive. The second one is another equally obvious one, and that is it didn't work. Despite centuries of ardent pleading, the passing of a huge amount of legislation and the pervasive demonization of even subtle forms of cruelty, inflicting pain on human and non-human animals remained routine. Third, the rhetoric could easily be counterproductive, further cementing prejudices about the nature of subordinate groups. And this is what the feminists of the late, sorry, of the early 20th century um, are beginning to, uh, talking, uh, not beginning to, are talking about quite a lot. When the earnest English woman and other feminists bound together um, female and animal sentience, of course, they played precisely into the hands of powerful voices within society who were claiming exactly the same thing, but as evidence of women's inferiority and incapacity as political subjects. Fourth, that it turned suffering into a sort of exquisite um, spectacle. Indeed, reports published by societies dedicated to the prevention of cruelty to both animals and humans were swollen, if you like, with lurid accounts of suffering flesh, with readers expected to bear their humane witness to it. Sympathetic witness to cruelty required the suffering body. As philosopher um, uh, Edmund Burke Observed, people have a degree of delight in the real misfortunes and pains of others. Terror could be a passion which always produces delight when it does not press too close. Fifth, um, it was simply not the case that sympathy for animals translated into sympathy for human beings. Empathetic identification was not transferable. Many of those working for animal rights found within it um, its discourse an endorsement for hurting certain people. And that was what I was hinting at when I was saying demoting certain people lower than certain animals. Um, I'm just going to give one example here, but I, I've, I've got many, many dozens. Um, 1888, Humane Society published a poem prefaced with the assertion that divine truth decreed that what, with what measure ye meet, ye shall be measured to you again. It shall be measured to you again. Now, after this bout of theology, the society identified the actual punisher as God's human agent. And so what's important here is that there's actually, I'm only giving one example, which is is, is a bit wrong, but there is a shift from the mid-19th century to the late 19th century about who is going to mete out the suffering, um, who's going to um, uh, punish people from it being God to it being um, God's representatives here on earth. And there's that huge change, which I've just glided, glossed completely over. Um, And this is interesting. 1888, they do make a sort of um, rhetorical um, mention of God. That Basically, they are already moving to its humans' representatives here on Earth, God's representatives here on Earth. Okay. And they published this, after they've said this, um, and this, by the way, is in their Rules and Regulations, so it's it's a very important document. Um, They publish a poem, um, which... um, introduces readers to a young boy called Tom, who had the habit of plucking off flies' legs and wings. Tom's father decided to give him a lesson. And the middle bit of the poem goes like this. Tom's father, okay. Catching his son of a sudden and giving his elbow a twist, he pulled his ears till he hollowed, then doubled him up with his fist. I'm not sure what my accent's meant to be for that, to get it to rhyme, but anyway. Um, And didn't he twist on the carpet, and didn't he cry out with pain? But whenever he cried, oh, you hurt me, his father would punch him again. So in other words, and this is in their rules and regulations, um, the message is clear, retributive violence, whether inflicted by God the Father or his paternal representative (gasps) here on earth, was justified. Finally, the politics was justified if you were cruel cool to animals. Finally, the politics of suffering was sef- uh, sensitive to graduations, graduate graduations. Once it was accepted that creatures varied in their susceptibility to pain and suffering, it was easy to argue that inequality might actually be a form of kindness so cruelty might be a form of kindness. In other words, languages of sentience were effortly, effortlessly co-opted to defend cruelty to living beings, human and non-human animals. This is what Maria Edgeworth did in her 1804 story, The Grateful Negro, in other words, justifying slavery by um, reference to sentience. Okay. As philosopher David Ritchie put it in 1895 in a a tremendously influential book called Natural Rights, if the recognition of animal rights is compatible with the kindly use of a horse as a beast of burden, would not a kindly Negro slavery be also perfectly compatible with the recognition of natural rights generally? And if we discriminate between what might be rightly done to um, a mouse from what might be rightly done to the mammal on the grounds of different grades of sentience, Should we not also discriminate between what might be rightly done to lower and higher races among mankind, the lower and less civilized being undoubtedly less capable of acute feeling? Okay, just to conclude. Um, The excluded, like the earnest English women, cried out to be um, at least acknowledged to be animals. The frantic tracing of the Mobius Strip, which is actually a... um, Thing I use um, throughout, throughout the book, the frantic tracing of this Mobius strip um, round and round attempting to note where in that strip um, the human starts and the animal um, stops was fundamentally governed by the need to both set the limits and expand the possibilities of violence. This is what the earnest Englishwoman recognised when she pleaded that the violence of men against women should be treated as violence of men against female animals. Ironically, the earnest English Women's satir- satirical question, Are Women Animals?, was a plea to allow for the humanization of women. In other words, this was about humanising women. The shifting emphasis away from abstract states of being human towards material conditions of visceral pain within a range of sentient bodies allows certain animals to be included in the rights discourse as well as allowing the sidelining of certain certain humans. Empathy proved easier to bestow on non-human animals among, on whom, upon whom a universe of state and feelings could be safely projected than on certain human animals whose pain was understood to be beyond empathetic response. Thanks. Thank